Welcome back to another edition of Mormon Expression. I'm your host, John Larson. We're here tonight in the um, Studio 1A, the Velvet Lounge. Um, so uh, we're here tonight. Welcome, everybody, because um, this is a countdown to the basement studio, right? Uh, we announced recently. Very excited. Uh, we've got the designers working. We've got the painters. We've got everything coming in. The new studio is going to be opening in Salt Lake City. Um, we are launching uh, the groundbreaking on January 31st, and the first um, podcast will be recording on the next Tuesday. After that, the two the recordings will happen every Tuesday, except when I take a night off. Um, and uh, there'll be uh, you know a live a live audience. We should be able to seat about 20 or 30 in there. It should be a great time, um, completely free of charge. Uh, we invite everybody to come down to Salt Lake City and watch um, Mormon Expression live as we go to the next level. Of course, um, with the studio and with the um, with the parent company Whitefields, we're launching some other endeavors. The one that we're really excited about, which will be launching March. Of course, this is 2014. I have to say that because this is our fifth year in in podcasting. So, um, in March, we'll be launching our first, um, group therapy sessions. Now, one of the, um, issues that, that, that I've observed over the last 10 years interacting with, um, ex-Mormons is, um, the transition is pretty fucking difficult. And, um, oftentimes we find each other and we sit in the rumpus room and drink and moan, but that may not be the most healthy, productive way to transition out of the church. So, um, our second initiative um, will be launching. We've got some great therapists we're working with, um, some great clinicians. Uh, this will be um, group therapy that will be led. We have designed it to keep the cost as low as possible. And in um, cases of um, financial need, um, we will be um, providing it um, gratis free. So um, um, uh, it's something we're really excited about. There are short sessions. Right now we're looking at about six weeks and a small group of about ten people. And those sessions will be repeating and we'll be scaling them up. We have some other things that are, that are coming down the pipe that we're really excited about. Um, the, um, you know, I, I, I feel like, uh, we're at the turning of the tide right now and, um, and exciting things are happening all over. It's well earned and well deserved for, for all of us to, to pay a little bit back. So I invite y'all to come along. Um, it will be fun. So now that I've kind of cozied up to the ex-Mormons tonight, um, Tonight, this is something I've been thinking about for a long time. Um, the podcast topic tonight is the top 10, um, I, I called it now the top 10 things I disagree with a lot of ex-Mormons about. And I originally titled the top 10 overrated ex-Mormon canards. Um, <laughs> these are things you hear from ex-Mormons all the time that are, that in my opinion are, are bullshit. Um, so, so we're going to go through the, I, I'm an, I'm an equal opportunity offender, I think is the, I, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to push one side too much. So I invite the studio audience here. Um, if you, if you disagree with me or maybe even be thinking about your own, there might be some that I left out and we can circle back on those things you hear from ex-Mormons that, that you don't agree with. Uh, as always, we're going to be counting it down 10 to number one. I'm reserving number one because that's the one that's going to get me in trouble. Um, and then, um, let's, let's begin. Okay. I, th- I think the first one that, I hear a lot of ex-Mormons kind of say and do that, 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 that is, it is wrong on several levels is they forget the distinction between the members of the church, the church, i.e. the corporation and the belief system. And they mix these together all the time. These things are very three distinct things. Um, and for example, 
th- this this manifests for people like me, and I'm sure many of you have heard this from your friends, saying, why are you still interested in Mormonism when you don't like the church? Because the church and Mormonism are two distinct entities. M- Mormonism is this very interesting, very bizarre, sort of rich, sort of weird history of Western culture mixed with the American Protestantism mixed with, I don't know, like science fiction theology, however you want, however you want to find it out. And, and it's this fascinating view of something that we don't get to see, but we know happens in human history all the time. You, you go to an old place and you dig up and you're going to find religious artifacts. Religions spring up. And that is a, a huge part of human history. Inseparable. I, you know, I dare somebody to find a, a, um, culture or, or uh, a people that doesn't have some sort of religion. And, and the examples you'll give me are ones when the nationalistic state has risen to the prominence of a religion. You know, it's become a religion of itself. It seems to be something that just, so in our DNA that if, if it's my belief that if you were to wipe out all the religions immediately and blank everybody's mind of those and then came back 40 years later, you'd have a whole new set. They'd be completely different. Um, they'd have an, a new strange set of beliefs, but they would still be there because they're, they're, we're sort of hardwired for them. And so, so Mormonism is this thing in and of itself. Then you have this corporation and the corporation um, and I don't use that as an insult because I'm, I'm mixing the church and the corporation because the Mormonism acts like a corporation because it is a corporation. And we're going to return to this point later in the night. But um, that's separate. If the church like um, buys a mall, and we're going to return to that later in the night too, um, that doesn't reflect anything on the theology. These are, these are two completely separate things. And the people um, and what they do and what they make um, you know, to eat – like funeral potatoes, which are scrumptious, but bad for you. Um, th- these things don't have anything, anything to, to, to do with each other. And what, what happens is, is people talk about that. Like, like they'll talk about Mormons in the pews as if they're responsible for the cattle farms in, in, um, Florida or as if, um, they're tithing, which they pay as a religious belief is somehow responsible for the things that the church does with it. Now, I can see the case, you could argue, saying you have a moral responsibility for if you give the church money for whatever the church does with it. My answer to everybody says that is, fuck you, you have a responsibility for who builds your shoes and where your car was built. It's, a, it's, an, it's an absolute valid argument, but if you're going to go around making that argument, I want to make sure that what you're wearing and what you have in your home is as pure as the snow, since you're accusing the Mormons of, of this sort of thing. Because their average Mormon in the pew is writing those checks because they believe God wants them to, and religion is something that happens right around them. There's Brother Smith and Sister Susan and all these people who, who that's, that's where it is for them. And they generally couldn't care less about what's going on in um, San Salvador. Um, so, so these things are different, and if you, if you switch between those, you, you muddy the issue. You muddy the point. Okay. I'm going to make a comment here. Please, Mark. Along those lines, I always like to say, you know, I used to hear this a lot is, you know, don't be, you know, you're, you're offended and, and all of that. And, and the church is, doesn't mean that that the church isn't true, but I look at it the other way and say, just because the church isn't true, that doesn't mean that the members aren't genuine. Mm -hmm. And I have a lot of resentment towards the institution, but I take it out on the the individuals, and that's uh, 
big mistake. We, we all do. We we blame the individuals for, for these institutional things that they really don't have any participation in. Now, like I said, you can argue that they have this sort of moral responsibility, but then we all have moral responsibility every time we drink a Pepsi. Um, you know, because and, – and especially if you're doing things like smoking marijuana. I, I mean, I, although I believe completely in the legalization of marijuana, but you go buy it right now – I can't remember the percentage, but most of the marijuana in the West is coming through, you know, like Juarez and stuff. And, and you're inadvertently participating in this, in this drug war. Um, it's, it's sort of a, well, what percentage of that are you responsible for? It's sort of low and it's, it's kind of a, not a real strong argument to say, how dare you be a member of the church because the church is putting mahogany in their temples. It's really a spurious argument. Well, on top of all that, how much does your average member know about the church's business? I was on my mission when I found out by accident that the senior missionaries worked out on the for-profit farm. They said, oh, we work out on the church farm. And I said, oh, is that where like the food for uh, welfare comes from? And they said, no, it's a for-profit farm. And I said, it's a what-what farm? They said, no, it's a for-profit <laughs> farm. You know, and then on top of that, you know, what are you doing out there? Oh, we we teach English to the migrant workers at the for-profit farm. That and that at that time, all I knew about was that the church had a for-profit farm in Northern California. I didn't know about the extent of it, and I think your average member, if they know any piece of it, they only know a tiny thing. And to get annoyed at them for being ignorant of something that they've never been exposed to is silly. Yeah, yeah, I mean, and and the church is full of these things. When I lived in Logan, I worked with a guy. Um, he worked technical support for my software company. And he also was a part-time elk guide out on the church's hunting grounds outside of Woodruff. Now, these hunting grounds, these are elk, according to this guy, and he was a true, true believer. These elk were farmed. They kept them in pens and fed them hay. Well, do they feed? I'm not. I'm not a farmer. Is it hay? What they bed in? They, they fed them grain, and then when wealthy people would come up to hunt, they would let them go. And as a guide, he knew where they would go, and they would take him up there, and they would get a good shot for somebody who didn't know how to shoot very well. These are fucking domesticated animals, and the church is running this. Now, are you responsible if you're the elders corn president down in St. George for that? No, not at all. Um, and, but they're funny stories. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So number nine is sort of related. Utah. I like Utah. Um, I have no problem getting anything I want to drink here. I don't use drugs, but I know where they all are. <laughs> um, there's clubs, there's anything you want in anywhere else is pretty much here. Um, and law, the liquor laws in Utah are very similar to places like Virginia. Um, there, there's plenty of states that have state controlled liquor. Um, the prices, despite popular belief, are actually not that much bigger, um, here than, than in other places. Um, you, you want to know what an expensive drink is? Go to, like, go to Manhattan or something. Go to New York. Um, so, um, People sort of take and attack Utah synonymously with the church. And I think this comes from actually the culture in the church. 
because there <laughs> there's a strong culture for Mormons who don't live in Utah that they're really sort of pissed off that Utah controls their life. <laughs> and if you go to any state outside of like Utah, Idaho, Idaho doesn't seem to have a problem with this, but California does and anywhere um, east, they will tell you, oh, but we're not Utah Mormons. We're not Utah Mormons. As if there's a big difference to anybody else, you know. Um, you know, it's like cockroaches. They can tell the difference between the boys and the girls, but we don't care, really, right? Um, that, that, that's, that sounded worse than I, cockroaches, where, where, <laughs> it's interesting to note that the liquor laws in Sweden, the entire nation of Sweden, are very, very similar to Utah. You can only get three, two beer in, in supermarkets. Everything harder than that is sold through state licensed liquor stores. Or not state level, Sweden license, I don't know, King of Sweden license, liquor stores, whatever it is. But, you know, that's the, the most secular nation on earth, supposedly. Well, um, I remember, and I might be getting this wrong, but we, we put together back like in 2007, uh, for, there was an ex-Mormon group I was with, and we put together a presentation on the liquor laws that we gave at the library. And if I remember correctly, the 3-2 beer is the federal standard for beer. And anything that's that has more alcohol than that is technically, by federal standards, called like a hard beer or something like that. Um, so, so Utah is just like on that. Most people have gone beyond it, but it's not like Utah made that up. It, that goes back to the, I think, Volstead Act. That's part of Prohibition, the three-two restriction. That's how old that is, and it used, right. the entire nation used to be on it. Which is why, because a lot of people wonder, Anheuser Busch isn't just making beer for Utah. You know, that 3-2 beer goes all over America and all over the world. You know, in other states, county to county, they have different laws. I mean, I've got a buddy from Georgia. There was dry counties. There were counties you could only get 3-2. Utah is not exceptional or unique. The 3-2 is by weight, not by volume. And so when you when you put it, look at it that way, it's, uh, you know, you drink 10 beers, that's the same. I, as, I, I don't know if this uh, is true, and I'm sure somebody will tell me if it's not. But I heard one time... That the difference between a six-pack of like Budweiser that you buy in the, in the grocery store in Utah versus the one you buy in Wyoming is a half a beer worth of alcohol. It, so specifically, it, the three-two by volume equates to four percent by or it's three-two by weight is four percent by volume. And right. you notice that all of the micro. If I'm looking at one now, all of the microbreweries in Utah. Uh, list their alcohol by weight because it looks like more. But Budweiser, I think your standard Bud Light is, I think, 5%. A Budweiser is like 5.5. Five, five, or might be 5% and 4.5. 4 versus the 4%. 4, 4%. Percent. So it really is not at all different. And also, Guinness. Guinness anywhere in the world. Guinness has always been a 4% beer. That's all it's ever been. So obviously, beer is something we're all very passionate about. <laughs> but the the point is that sometimes these things are unduly like cited as if they're like this big fucking deal. And when you look look down to it, it's 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 not that big of a deal. There are state liquor stores everywhere um, in, in Utah. They're going up fast. They're nice. They're clean. Um, they have good customer service. There's one in every neighborhood, and they sell anything you want. But, but you, there are no refrigerators. And and as a high school student, not that I you know condone any of that underage drinking. Totally against it. But you sound way more cool saying. We went to Wyoming and scored some beer. <laughs> Absolutely. But, you know, when I go to Nevada where you can buy alcohol everywhere, it's kind of gross. Like the stores and I, I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't have a problem with Wait, it. Wait, why are you buying alcohol in Nevada? It's free everywhere. Well, if you're playing the slots or whatever. <laughs> um, listen, when I bought that champagne for bubbles, that was not an inexpensive <laughs> bottle. I'm telling you.
Some people are laughing. Others don't know what the hell I'm talking about. <laughs> um, uh, all right. So, yeah. Uh, y- Utah, um, y- you know, it routinely ranks as one of the gayest cities in the United States. There is a huge counterculture here of people who definitely are not Mormons. Right. So 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 it's not like there's a war. Salt Lake City is a very secular city um, and it's very progressive. And because people who are not Mormons specifically gravitate to that place. Now, it's as progressive. It's not like a super city. It's like Phoenix or Denver or one of these other sort of middle America cities. But it's not particularly strange either. Don't forget Moab, Snowbird. Yeah, Park y- City. The 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 beauty of Utah is 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 the outdoors um and all the things. And you know, when you go down there, you're surprised because half the people are speaking German, and, you know, and French and Japanese. And you know, it's it's a it's a world-renowned place. And there's some great cuisine here, that not tons of it, great s- skiing, you know. I and and my complaint, my chief complaint about Utah is 10 years ago, like I used to have these free shopping days and free, you know, like on Sunday. All you Mormons need to go back to church and get out of the grocery store. It's getting too crowded. Uh, for years, I've had a Sunday ritual where I go out with all my friends for brunch on Sunday afternoon. And in conference, we always have to get out of town. For some reason, all of the bars and all the cafes are packed on conference Sunday. Can't explain it. Yep, yep. No, I've heard that from people who own bars. They they said there's a lot of into it's a big a lot of alcohol get sold in Utah on conference weekend. <laughs> I think maybe um, part of it comes from I, I remember be, as a true believer, kind of feeling wrapped up in Utah politics and policy. I think you see it right now a lot with um, the gay marriage issue that's super exciting right now. That um, people wrap up their identity a lot in what the state is doing. And so when you leave, I think maybe you carry some of that with you and, and you think you're seeing Mormonism and really you're just seeing, you know, a, a state. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And I, I think that's true. I think I used to have that on my list, but it's, it's, it's a good point. I, I pulled it off the list. People confuse, um, Western culture and Mormon culture. And this is a, this is a thing that I, this is a, a, a beef that I have with the uh, New Order Mormons, with noms and liberal Mormons. That's not my list here. But they always talk about, we're going to preserve Mormon culture. We, we, we want to keep the Mormon culture. There's no fucking Mormon culture. There's nothing there. You pull, you pull it away and it's all like Western culture and it's all like, uh, you know, Utah culture and, 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 all, and all that stuff. If I give you a redneck Arizona senator, who has never even heard of the church and bring the senator from Kanab, you can't tell me the difference between those two. It's not coming from Mormonism. It's coming from, from this, this Western culture. And, and you can find more in common between Mormons and evangelicals, you know, than between, I, I don't know, whatever my metaphor just broke down, but you, you will, you, you, you Mike a, Lee, Ted Cruz. There's a lot of stuff. That comes from this, 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 this culture and this place that really don't have any result in the theology. And you can point out theological elements that are hyper conservative, but you can also go into the Book of Mormon and point out theological elements that are very liberal. And the church has swung this direction in the past. It's gone other directions. In the, in the twenties, before the depression hit, the church was very liberal. Um, it was very progressive. You get Sunday school manuals from the time and they're full of like, Walt Whitman poetry and all sorts of interesting things. And the church is not necessarily this bastion of conservatism. And I mean, th- this goes with our whole Utah thing that uh, sometimes people talk about that 
like Glenn Beck is representative. There's plenty of people like Glenn Beck in the church, but he represents a faction of the church. And you can't make the sleight of hand that Glenn Beck stands in for all Mormons because it's just simply not the case. Okay, next one, number eight. Um, they're going to get more interesting, I promise. <laughs> the church is obviously false to believers. This is an assumption that, that ex-Mormons have all the time. And there's a corollary to it, which is if I can just show them this thing right here, they will see, I'm pointing to my hand, by the way, they will see that the church is obviously false. Now, if you, if you are a little bit schooled in religion and theology and logic, and you didn't grow up in the church, the church is obviously false. I, just like, just like all other religions. <laughs> um, um, because you haven't bought into these premises that are just frankly kind of weird. Um, and, but when you're inside, the church, like all religions, has evolved in such a way, it's survival of the species, it's survival of the religion. When religions espouse ideas that are obviously false, or obviously falsifiable, they don't make it into the gene pool. Usually I, I can keep my, uh, my line of thought. So if the church, <laughs> the, um, so if you, t if the church from, from an outside perspective, you can see the church is not true, but from the inside perspective, there's this lattice of belief that's around there. And these ideas that aren't true have been slowly trimmed off that, that are obviously not true. So the ideas that are patently false get discarded. And then you're left with this, this, um, this lattice, this uh, paradigm that when you're inside and you accept a few fundamental premises, then the other things follow. And we've talked about that in previous podcasts. We'll talk about it in the future. But it's not obviously false. It's not obviously ridiculous to believers because of the underlying assumptions they have. Um, so, so outsiders, once they flip, it's, it's interesting that ex-Mormons suddenly can oftentimes lose that empathy for belief. And I think it comes from the fact that there was a, t a transition period where they were, they were uncertain. It's sort of like people going through divorce. Obviously, at some time, they were happy to some degree in the marriage. But as the marriage starts to decline, oftentimes they'll start coloring their entire worldview of the relationship until it was always bad. And it's not just divorce. You see this happen. It was always bad. It was always false. It was always untrue. And so I think there's this phenomenon that goes through, through um, ex-Mormons where they really they look at it and they say, my God, how did I believe that? And then they start externalizing that onto the believers and say, are these people morons? How are they, are they idiots? They're dangerous. They're hyper conservatives. They're, they, they just start, um, um, t turning all these into like these pathological elements. And, and it's, it's not, it's not a case. The, the church is full of all sorts of intelligent, warm, wise people who accept these weird premises and then go on and live normal lives. And it's not obviously false to them. If it were, they would come out. And but the religions don't don't fall like that. So that's number eight. The corollary, number seven, is is one I actually hear more often, which is, and I've gotten into arguments. Um, as we go up the list, there'll be more heated arguments I've had people. The general authorities know the church is not true. They obviously know the church is not true. I, I hear this a lot. I, I, it's okay. So here's how you become a general authority. Around about 30, you become a bishop. You're going to be a bishop for five years. Hard job. A lot of people check out after they're bishops. They're like, uh, send me to the nursery. Um, then you're going to be on the high council. 
Then you're going to get the stake presidency. You're going to do that for about 10 years. Then you're going to be the stake president. You're going to do that for about 10 years. By this time, you're about ready to retire. You're in your 50s. Church will send you on a mission as a mission president. Um, and that's a tough job. And a lot of people don't do very well at it. The ones who do really well at it, they'll either do it again or they'll go and become a temple president or they'll become an area authority. And these guys will be assigned all sorts of grunt work and they'll be going around the church handling problems. They'll do this for another 10 or 20 years. Now you're about 60. So you've, you've, you've gone from one level to the other level to the other level, magnifying your calling, demonstrating your loyalty. Um, you've been selected and you've been watched now for your business acumen, for how you can handle numbers, how you can discipline people underneath you, how you need people to follow you, how you can pe- get people to believe what you're saying is true. And the number one way to get people to believe what you're saying is true is to believe it yourself. Okay. I was just going to say, um, and you said they're being, they're being watched by software, right? Summer. They are. John DeLynn, you can ask him. He won't <laughs> deny it. I didn't say anything. He was the project manager for the software system the church uses to track general authorities. And I one time asked him, sorry, John, I one time asked him, what does the, the what does the um, software application do? And he says, exactly what you think it does. <laughs> so it it's used to track people who are in business careers and who are likely candidates. So what did they do before that? Was it just check your last name? I'm sure they had a room full of clerks. You know, think about like Morley and Scrooge, you know, on the little <laughs> desks with quill pens. When the church was smaller, it was a lot more familial and nepotism there was a lot of dynasties i right. mean the, the quorum of the 12 up until what the 80s was pretty much dynastic wasn't there it? still are it's the uh, not not the majority but the plurality like 40 percent of them are fairly closely related i started drawing it out a couple of years ago um but yeah and they come from the same stakes which are the stakes from the wealthy powerful places in utah not everybody, because as the church becomes bigger like you're implying they can't do that anymore because it just it just becomes too big well, on my mission, we all found out that uh, our president got his calling directly from Monson because our mission president was Monson's home teacher. Right. That There's all sorts of interconnections, as there would have to be, right? What, what, what's the alternative? So now, they just pull whatever's name in a fishbowl and pull them out? You know, they have to have connections. You think they, they pray about it. They need to talk to God. <laughs> oh, come on. And then they would know. Yeah. <laughs> so we're not going to get another Jay Golden Kimball. It's unlikely. Okay. So now let's talk about, because who can really make changes? So now you're 65. You've been in the machine now for 35 years, and you get put on the quorum of the 12. You're actually in the quorum of the 15, and you're 15th in line. Every Wednesday, you meet in the temple to decide all the important things about the church, and you sit in order, and you vote in order. And these men, who the, the senior ones, have now been apostles for 30 years, who you've grown up since you were a young adult, you have seen as and believed to be the representative of God. When there's a vote, a yes or no vote, one starts. Yes, 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 yes. Now, the Quorum of the Twelve, brilliant by design, only does things unanimously. Yes, 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 yes. You're sitting in chair 15. You've been through this 35-year system of vetting where they can get rid of you at, at any time. What do you say at that point? And and you can read like um in in the biography of McKay, um a, a great book talks about how sometimes the younger apostles didn't and they would table it, and they'd say we want you to go back and pray about it. Well, you got to have like 
snuffleupagus balls to come back and say, <laughs> I prayed about it and the rest of you motherfuckers are wrong. Um, because God told me, you know, cause these guys are all, these guys are all sitting in front, um, of, of you. So by the time you're up to seat number one, by the time you're in a position to make real change, you have now been in positions of authority in the church 60, 70 years. You have been shown loyalty again and again and again and again. I would argue for anybody that says when they get up there, and I don't grant Palmer made this argument, it's bullshit. When you get up there, they recognize it to be false. That's just not psychologically possible. You have been selected for this job. It's like the born identity, right? Or, or whatever, or gross point blank. You know, they took the test and you had no moral aptitude. So they made you an assassin. You, you <laughs> have been selected for this particular acumen. And the probability of somebody jumping ship is so minusculely low. And, and I hinted at it before, but the selection criteria is not for theologians. This is my beef about the church this, these days. We only have really one theological thinker left. That's Packer and he's about to croak. There's no more. They're all policy men or businessmen and we don't have anybody who's doing any interesting thinking. I know everybody's gaga over Uchtdorf. This guy does not say anything interesting at all. I mean, he's, I mean, he's nice to look at. I, I might jump teams for. <laughs> he's not from Utah. He's not from Utah. That's a little sexy. Yeah. Um, oh, wait. That was number nine. I, Did we? Oh, sorry. I didn't mean to jump ahead. Oh. I prayed for that, though. So it is, it is progress. And instead of the white guys from here, now we're getting the white guys from over there. <laughs> right? So. I mean, in, in German, blue-eyed, blonde hair. Yeah, yeah. Mm. <laughs> they're, they're cleaning it up, actually. They just wanted to prove there was an actual German convert somewhere in the world. <laughs> There's those who've argued that, for, for real. Uh, but uh, So, yeah, I, I just do not buy that the general authorities don't, don't believe it. They're, they're just not prone to believe one way or the other, you know? I would not disagree with that one bit. I think they all believe it. However... They're, uh, they're also pragmatic and then there's senility and various things. So there could, could be changed just we, like Gorbachev. We have ways of dealing with that. The whole auto pen controversy with, with Benson. I mean, this is his grandson, um, Steven. Steve. Yeah. Um, you know, he, he talks about how, you know, his, he talks about how Benson was just completely gone in the last few years and, and they did. They changed under auto pen. Um, Hinckley and Monson famously changed the authority of the president of the church to give that vest that power in the entire first presidency, but it was signed by Otto Penn. How that sort of happens is a little bit spurious, but it's a private company. They didn't do anything illegal, but if this was our government, yeah, that would be, that would be John, Did you look at that, that paper online that somebody put together seeing, um, Basically saying how, how Thomas Monson has never testified about the basic tenets of the church. Or yeah, that isn't. That I've seen it over and over again. Um, you know that he's never said this or never said that. But to me, that just confirms my point. They don't think about it in terms like that. The church just is. The church just is the organization. Um, you know, like my family was very Mormon, many many generations. We didn't spend time bearing testimony to each other because the church just was who we were. Um, it it it. it the idea that it could be false just didn't enter into people's heads. And that's, that's, that's what these guys, they don't, they're not, when presented with evidence, they're just going to flow with it like they did with the salamander level, letter. It doesn't cog, cognitive dissonance for these guys. That's my premise. That, that bugs though to me. I don't know if anyone's seen the new movie, the World War Z. 
and where they talk about having the principle of the 10, the 10th man. So just a quick backstory. What happens is all the heads of that state of Israel, when they're presented with some kind of foreign intelligence or information that could be cataclysmic or they have to make a really big decision, the if all of them unanimously agree, the 10th man's job is to presume that the facts are wrong, that everyone else is wrong, and to act as if. And what a what a better way than, to, I don't think in Joseph Smith's time, he made everyone go down in line and then made sure that they agreed. That's why there was so much conflict. It's in the Bible. that In, in the Old Testament, there's a count, I can't remember, it's 50 or 70 that tries somebody for for um, justice and says, if all 70 agree that somebody's guilty, then obviously there's a conspiracy and it gets thrown out. <laughs> um, there's some interest in that idea. When I was excommunicated, presumably one of the guys in the room was my advocate. I found out later that that's according to the church court rules, like one of the you know half of them. It's supposed to be six and six. The way they're supposed to. Oh, jeez, no, I, 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 I thought it was just the one guy, but no, I couldn't no. tell the difference either way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Nobody came to my defense at my excommunication. No, that's for sure. Well, you know. Yeah, and I just guilt, me. and there's guilt. I'm, I'm just saying. I'm just, <laughs> uh, you know, you, you can't expect too much. I think after you've been in church leadership that long, you're pretty comfortable with the idea that revelation is, is nothing at all identifiable, because you know, I, I know, my dad as bishop will tell me that he didn't really feel anything different, um, and he just trusted that kind of whatever he did would be guided, but. And after rising through the ranks, you know, as your mission president or whatever, with really no identifiable guidance, you're pretty comfortable with the idea that, oh, just say yes. But there's two types of people, and they're both dangerous, <laughs> these leaders. One, and I've heard this argument, that they're kind of like your father, and they say, well, I don't feel anything really different. But God chose me, and I'm the one that God wants, so I'm God's representative. Therefore, what I say goes. This is kind of a standard corporate model. Yeah. And the other, they hear the voice of God. <laughs> um, I, you know, I, when I was a missionary, I always stressed over the fact that, like, when I gave blessings or whatever, I didn't have any sort of revelation. And then it was a relief when I left the church saying, oh, it wasn't me. And then I remember, like, six months later waking up and saying, wait a minute, what's up with all the rest of these fuckers? Because that, how, what were they doing? You know, these guys are kind of dangerous. You know, I was envious of them because they could feel it. But now I'm like, whoa, they're... Are we selecting for people who are a little wacky? And the answer is yes, we are. Um, but but that this is why the church selects corporate people. Because if those two categories, which do the church want? The church wants the guy who's an authoritarian, who starts to believe his own bullshit, and starts saying, well, I'm God's representative. God put me in charge so I can lead the church how I want to. An authoritarian, but still pragmatic. Very pragmatic. These guys are selected for... Their business acumen. This whole idea of ex Mormons going on about well, these guys must not know, and they're mad about it. Like they must be lying. They act as though there's no instance anywhere of somebody sincerely and earnestly believing something mistaken. Like outside of Mormonism, you know, I run into this all the time where people are like, "How how does so and so believe that?" Have you heard of religion? Have you ever met? You know, you know things like that happen. Cults exist. You know, how do you think those happen? And and they act flabbergasted, and it's simple, motivated reasoning. That's how they believe it. Well, look, look at how many corporations are in the, in the United States. How many of them are, are corrupt 
or otherwise doing something wrong. I mean, somewhere in every big corporation, there's something going on. Okay, given that number, how many whistleblowers are there? It's a tiny, tiny number in comparison. How many corporate lawyers quit and just say, I, I just can't, this is just crazy. <laughs> it's, we as, we are genetically programmed to kind of accept what, what people around us believe. And it's really kind of rare for people inside a corporate, a corporation head to get them say, Microsoft is crazy. I know I'm the CIO, but I got to get out of here. I mean, that, that's, that just doesn't happen. They internalize the values. And also, what's going to prompt a guy who, I mean, imagine you were born in the church, your, your parents were probably some kind of prophet or an apostle themselves, whatever it was. Uh, you know, you go through the leadership, all of that, and I've lost my train of thought. Totally. You, what's going to prompt them to leave? Yeah, the, to, your, your to entire, invest. like, you know, when, when you're an apostle and you're chairman of the board of BYU or Beneficial Life or whatever it is, and you get all of this attention, you fly around on a jet, they give you an apartment, everybody thinks you're special and talk to God. Is that guy going to go home, put his head on his pillow and think, well, I wonder if it's not true. What What is up with the Kinderhook plates? It's just not going to cross their minds because you imagine people naturally, especially when good things happen to you, it's it's the just worldview. Well, of course this is how the world – of course I'm an apostle. Of course I'm a powerful, important person that, you know, that speaks for God. I must be. Otherwise, why would people treat me like that? Yep. Absolutely. I would just like to argue that it's still got to cross their minds sometimes. I mean, it's just, it just has to. You know, and it's this very, very small, minuscule number of people that might actually do it one, one day. But in the beginning of the church, it was a lot. They might have doubts. I think, I think, um, Kimball those... wrote about his doubts, but then they go on. They're seeing a lot of good things happening. Yeah. And I mean, there, there, this is, um, there's a psychological phenomenon for this called like acquired, something something narcissism i wish i could remember the term it's it's what people like michael jackson get um they literally they 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 get surrounded by a posse of people just telling them all the time that their shit doesn't stink and and after a while of doing that this happens to ceos and directors of of companies all the time you're just surrounded by lackeys all the time and there's nobody telling you look come on what are you talking about there elder oaks that's crazy i mean who who tells him that, that, that what he's saying is weird. There's nobody, nobody to do it. So, so I, I think you might be right. They might entertain doubts, but they're just surrounded by people saying, Oh, you're, you're the master. You're the master. Where would they go to even air or discuss doubts? These Where, guys if are you're an apostle or even just any general authority. Who could you possibly go to? I think the last example that we have of that was BH Roberts, where when he was going to all the apostles with all of his issues and it wasn't a one on one. It was him against the committee once again. And so. Right, right. And these guys, I, I feel sorry for them. They're in a gilded cage. And I have presented the question to other ex-Mormons say, what would you do? All right, I suddenly, you know, we do, it's Freaky Friday. Whoop. And, <laughs> and you are now, mons- what, what do you do? Are they all egotistical? Of course. I would actually move to 9% tithing, just do a little reduction. I think that with that, <laughs> they can get that, that many more members. I think overall, it would be a good move. That's that, that's what I would do if I were the president. That's the only thing I do. Nine percent tithing. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll vote for you. <laughs> All right. Let's move forward. Um, the next one is is one I was just recently arguing with a bunch of people about, so I thought I'd add it on the list. City Creek. Um, City Creek is, of course, the the redevelopment project, the great big mall that's um downtown. Um, a lot of ex Mormons have problems with this, and they say two things that are both complete 
completely without merit, and it gets repeated all of the time. The first one is they say it was built with tithing. Maybe, but nobody knows. There are no records to suggest. It's You're just making shit up at that point, which is something that we accuse religious people of doing all the time. They go through big reasoning. Well, the church has all this money and da, 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 and they'll go through this big, long thing, but there is no evidence at all the City Creek was built on tithing. As a matter of fact, in a minute, I'll talk to you why I think it wasn't. The second one, they say, is they keep... I remember when it was being built, there would be another like ex-Mormon thing that would go through, and they'd keep adding another billion to it. It's now $4 billion, It's now $5 billion. And there, there was no source for anything. They always had like these inside moles who were giving them, oh, yeah, this guy, he, he's the draftsman for the chief architect. And he's telling you it's fine. That no one knew how much. As a matter of fact, I bet the chief project manager of that project, because of the size of it, could not tell you what the bottom line cost of that mall is. I bet there's nobody around who even knows. Uh, but but there's ex-Mormons who walk around like talking about it like they've seen this <laughs> statement at the bottom with this $5 billion figure. And and then and then this is what and then you ask, is well is the cost of it what it should be for 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 the mall? And they can't answer that question at all, right? Um, so so here's the thing, the church has always owned Salt Lake City. When they got into Salt Lake City, the first thing they did, or one of the first things they did, is they partitioned it out and they gave people land, and the church contained con, con, retained control. The Brigham Young, so remember they were living sort of a quasi united order at this time, and Brigham Young controlled all the timber, all of the resources. You had to get a permit from the church to do anything. So, so there's this argument that it has to be in tithing dollars, because where else would the church get the money? The church got the money because they controlled the fucking coal, and they controlled the timber, and they controlled the railroad, and they always have. And we're gonna come back to why that's the case in a minute here. But the church has had enterprises that were for profit from the beginning. And City Creek was a redevelopment project. Ex-Mormons talk about it as if the church swooped in and bought up Salt Lake City and decided to build a mall. There was a mall there before. This was, this was a rebuilding of the church's fucking mall that they already owned. And when you have a downtown of a city, you do not want to put a Mervyn's down there. Okay. You do not want like the same sort of shopping center. Is Mervyn still around? No, I don't know. <laughs> you definitely don't want a Mervyn. <laughs> you don't build the same mall in a city center that you build in the suburbs. That's not what you do. So people are like, oh, the church is high end. No, that's what you do in the middle of a city. If you want your city to be nice, you build nice shopping centers in, in the downtown area. That's what every downtown does. The, the simple fact is the church happens to own downtown and happens to be in the business of property development. If you ignore that fact and you look at City Creek, it's not out of character for a town of Salt Lake City size. It is the prudent financial decision for the church to make given the fact that the church controls money. So City Creek is not the problem. The problem is that people don't think the church should be owning malls. But that's a different question altogether. Uh, I was actually just going to start fighting with you, but All right, my point for it. me, which I, that was just the fight. You made the point for me is that, I mean, I don't care anymore because I'm out, but I think what a lot of it is the ex-Mormons are looking at the Mormons and saying, how do you not have an issue with the one and true restored church of Jesus Christ on earth doing business 
of any kind commercially whatsoever. Like, I mean, I think even if they just brought back ZCMI, it would have put a little veneer on it of saying like, oh, no, we're just, you know, we're doing the old church thing again. But that's like, I don't, as an institution, I don't give a shit what they do as a corporation. To me, the question is just like, you know, it's like if the Catholic Church opened up a McDonald's, you know, like, what the hell are you doing? What are you for? We'll get to that. This is point number and five. And actually, we'll that, that comes back to the Utah thing is the church is making that complaint about the style of the stores. The church is kind of making it less Utah, more open. I have a pro and a con on that. I think it was positive that they put that money in at the time that we were in a recession. That was a lot of extra money into the economy. My biggest negative about City Creek and everything is just the lack of transparency, um, the fact that we don't know. Um, but, 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 but wait, does Fashion Place Mall bother you that you don't have any transparency into it? Yeah, do you know how much Walmart cost in your I, I mean, location? Well, walk, walk around to all the development centers in Salt Lake. Do you walk around and say, these fuckers, I don't know how much they've spent. You don't even, that doesn't cross your mind. Yeah, prob- you know? probably not. So I, you know what? That's probably a separate issue than the City Creek. I think as, as a tithing, I'm not a tithing payer, but so what do I have to say about it? But I think that the general funds of the church and that lack of transparency is something. And so maybe I'm transferring that onto City Creek. Um, because that came up a lot during the City I Creek conversations. I think that's really common. When, when, when I get in the City Creek conversations, that, that'll oftentimes go to transparency. Mark? Do you, um, do you think that it'd be interesting if the church separated all, all of those type of endeavors as Deseret, you know, the company or whatever, and then everything else was tithing-based, and that's just like the smaller church? It, it might be, but th- th- this goes, to the, this, this goes to the transparency issue. People criticize the church for not being transparent. Because in Matthew twenty two fourteen it says that every religion that started needs to be financially transparent and the books need to be open quarterly, right? I mean, that, that's something that Jesus made a big point of. No, it's not. There's, there's, there, the, the, the church is completely within compliance of U.S. law, which allows for certain. It, it basically allows for um, non transparency or non public disclosure, and and for religions, it gives a, a huge. A huge um, umbrella. Now, the church, let's be clear, the church pays taxes on City Creek. A, a, a religion, a nonprofit, can own, this is both for religious and regular nonprofits, nonprofits can own for-profit institutions, but they have to pay taxes on the, on the for-profit stuff. I've even heard ex-Mormons and others like argue that the, 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 I'm not going to say Mervyn's, the cheesecake cake factory <laughs> down there, um, we heard that. Uh, the Cheesecake Factory, you know, like the church somehow is tax exempt on that. They're not at all. Every for profit endeavor the church runs, they have to pay regular taxes. But, and we're all fine talking about the church as a corporation because it is legally, yeah, yeah. it acts like one. It is one. Nobody at, at denies that. Conceivable respect, but except for Mormons. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't say Mormons deny it. I think the whole idea the, the, to conceptualize, if you're a believer, to conceptualize the church as a corporation or even having like a corporate side to it i think is a little weird and i think mormons the members they don't they they can't make that leap all right it's time to go to number five because i'm gonna argue <laughs> with you. and i have this classified in two different ways this so so we're getting to arguments to steam me up a little bit more <laughs> this argument goes the church should be more christian the church is not christian enough or the church runs as a business why is God's church running out of business? Or why isn't the church giving more money to the poor? 
These are all the same argument. Hey, this is tied exactly to the previous one. So you give me a microphone. I'm going to give you, you give my mom a shout out. So this was one of the sharpest knives in her drawer against the church when she left. I think it helped her conscience. Right. Was, uh, you know, really likening the scriptures. So in Mark 14, 7, where Jesus said, the poor you will always have with you. And that's, that's her, her big grudge against it is that, Shouldn't that money be used for the poor? So what you're doing is you're taking one theology over here that the church does not buy into. And then you're comparing the church to it. You're taking modern American Protestantism, and you're saying the Mormon church does not conform to the Methodist creed. Therefore, the Mormon church is not true. The Mormon church has always, from the beginning, been about building the literal kingdom of God. When you pull the New Testament and you read scriptures about anti-materialistic things— that is not Mormon theology. It has never been Mormon theology. And I would push back on you, Flip, and say there are lots of Mormons who have no problem with Mormon empire building, and they understand that theological point. And matter of fact, they see the temples, and when they read about the cattle farms in in um, Florida, they pat themselves on the back and they say, this is evidence that we are the true church and we are the rough stone cut out of the mountain that's going to roll forth and cover the whole world. And I remember being taught that eventually governments and everything would fail, but the Mormon church would continue to grow. And that growth not only meant theologically, that meant dairy farms and wheat fields and canneries and tuna operations. When I was in Missionary in San Diego, they had a tuna factory. My dad picked pineapples on the church pineapple farm. Exactly. And and I, I do think there are Mormons who, who do have trouble with this, but I say they're misapplying the theology. The, then it's fine to say, I'm not, I don't want to be a Mormon because I want to be a Methodist. That's fine. But it's it's a fallacy to say Mormonism is not true because it's not living up to Protestant theology. Mormon theology has always been fine with the Mormon church owning and running businesses. Mormon theology has never had a problem with the church running malls. I, uh, about 15 years ago, I was approached by an evangelical friend and he, he thought he really had me. He said, he said, the Mormon church has stock in Coca-Cola. And, and he meant that as, you know, see, they're, they're, you can't drink caffeine and they're involved in business and they own stock in Coca-Cola. And embarrassingly, I was that type that patted myself on the back and said, I'm part of a church that is smart at business and knows where to put its money so that it can grow its funds. And this has always been the theology since Smith. I would say, though, with Smith, the, in the, the Book of Mormon, the story of the Rami Umpton, is that how you pronounce it? And the people that were, uh, apostatized because they were overly caught up in materialism. I think I, I, I see both, well, but I do Smith, think that is a Smith wrote the Book of Mormon in 1829, right? That, that, the Book of Mormon has little to do with Mormonism because Mormonism evolved for the next 22 years or whatever, the next 12 years and into, into the, into, um, Young's campaign and, and to hold Mormonism to the Book of Mormon, it's, 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 it's not their theology. That's not, by the time Nauvoo had come along, they'd left that behind. And, and just like they left behind the, these elements of the, of the New Testament. And all religions grow and you can look at that as a sign of saying, hey, the Catholic Church is not in, is not congruent with Mark or, or whatever. But, to say that, that the Catholic Church is false because it doesn't follow, say, Anglican teaching is a little weird. And to suggest that the Mormon Church 
is not the true church because it doesn't follow the New Testament, doesn't follow um, this Protestant liberalism, that only works if you're an evangelical or you're proponing those particular ideas. And once again, not that there's anything, you can come and attack the church from a theological position. You can say, the church is not true because Hinduism is true. But you can't say, the church is not true because it doesn't follow the five pillars of Islam. That's a fallacious argument. And I would say, similarly, you can't really say the church is not true because it doesn't follow this, this particular ethic, because that's not the church's ethic. There's no problem in Mormon theology with owning business. But the, your point was, wasn't it, um, that the church is, is, um, doesn't need to be doing all this uh, humanitarian work or something like that. Wasn't that the point? Well, I, I mentioned money to the poor. Yeah, yeah. But, but I think some ex-Mormons may have problems with that just because they see their friends that are Mormons saying, we are helping out more than anybody else. If there's a big tragedy, I have friends get on Facebook that say things like, oh, you know, the church is doing more than anybody in this area. And it's just, and then that angers an ex-Mormon because they're like, no, 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 you don't, they're, they're not. And so that's where I think ex-Mormons get upset. They do get upset, but it, it's, it's, a, it's a fallacious argument to say the church is not true because they don't give money to poor people. It's sort of like saying the, um, the Buddhists aren't true because their, their robes are orange. Because you're implying that you, you're, you have an underlying assumption that the true church gives money to the poor. And that argument has never been made. Well, I think part of the problem is that the church actually works to project an image that they do help the poor. They send out their crews of volunteers wearing the helping hands over vests. Right. And they, and they advertise it. I mean, I'm, I'm not arguing your point at all. I'm just saying more to this point uh, about the Facebook friends and ex-Mormons look at that and they say, that's false. That, that, that's a, that's a, that's a false image that the church is trying to project. That, that they are helping the poor, when in fact, the amount that they help the poor is very minuscule. Well, yes and no. I mean, I, I, I agree. They, they tend not to help outsiders. But if you've been in the church leadership, you know they give a lot of money, and they give a lot of food, and they do a lot of things for people who are inside. I think often as critics on the outside say, yeah, but strings attached. You know, they, they'll let you go to the bishop's storehouse and shop, but they'll make you go do the temple every week and they'll make you serve in the boy scouts and and they they kind of suck this stuff back in the thing is the church that a tbm believes in is doing enormous amounts of charity and the church is happy to let them fester in that blissful misconception while doing almost nothing i think that's part of the problem because i don't know about saying like oh the church isn't true because i mean the church isn't true because there's no god but, you know, what they do with their money. I think the problem ex-Mormons have is looking at the Mormons and saying, like, you think your church is doing this thing, that they're giving all this money and they do all this charity work. Well, look, I, I found a guy who published stuff from England, and it's not true. I, you know, there is a big disconnect there. Cause Go ahead. And it, it's not about saying that the, the church isn't true. It's uh, you're, You know, what you're saying about it being a fallacious argument, I agree with that. However, it is. I like the word fallacious because it sounds like fellatio. <laughs> All right. I just, I just want to put that out there. But it is. It's frustrating though. What I see is a lot of people in Mormonism. They like I've even seen posts where they're like, "Well, we don't need social programs. the The United States should just adopt the church's welfare program, right, right. and and that's great." And I see it affect the the politics and the mindset. In fact. Um, what's interesting is there's some real similarities in Utah and Mormonism 
to socialism in uh, the Scandinavian countries. And, and Utahns are really against socialism, but that's because they kind of have this, this safety net of their own. And then, and when you step out of that and start to look back into it and say, wow, I, I don't have that anymore. It's easy to, uh, to kind of resent that or feel a lot of uh, insecurity um, for me personally, you know, when I w- when I was in it, then I felt like this, you know, Scandinavian sense of, you know, I'm, I'm part of this community and I'm going to give to it and all of that. But, um, but Mormons don't realize, or, or they, they tend to, to be insular and not, um, not realize that everybody doesn't believe it's true and that there are people that do have an insecurity. So, but it's not a, you know, it's not a, well, I, I think you make an excellent point, it. you know, because we're not really talking about why ex-Mormons are motivated for these particular things. Well, we have a little bit, but you, you have this social safety net in the church and it's a strong one. If, if you are in the church and you can't make your mortgage payment, you can go to the bishop and the bishop is fully empowered to write you a check for your rent. He can feed you, he can clothe you, he can do, he can do all this stuff. And the church has enormous resources that they distribute very freely to their members. I think where ex-Mormons get a little bit upset is the realization emotionally that they left the church and the safety net has gone. That all of this sort of implied kindness that was pumped up with the rhetoric of Jesus loves everybody was suddenly pulled out from underneath them. So I think there's this personal resentment saying, you guys think you're so charitable, but you're not charitable to me is the, is the parenthesis. And so the, I think the ex-Mormons tend to, tend to try to make that point. But this goes to number 10. Remember, I, the, the first one I said is that people fail to make the distinction between the members, the corporation, and, and we just did that. We said the church sends out the people to clean up after a hurricane. They're there. They're cleaning up after a hurricane. The church does not claim that they are also like turning water into wine. They just, they just, but they put those t-shirts on and then the members go and make these claims. And the ex-Mormons say, ah, you see, da, 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 da. But they're doing number 10. Just because members are confused doesn't mean the church is actually deceiving the membership. And now the question is, does the church let those ambiguities play? Of course they do. Yeah. There's no, there's no doubt, but that's different than misrepresentation. For me, for me, it's been, uh, a real sticking point, the claim of being the same organization that existed in the primitive church, that the idea is that whatever organization exists today is the same organization that existed in the church Christ formed. And so I think, I think the redesign of the logo to make sure, I mean, they're always pushing this idea of being the church of Christ. I think it's a fair argument to look at the new Testament. And so even though I would agree theologically, the, the church does not, you know, it does not look like the New Testament. No, 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 no. You know how we know that yeah. it's the same organization because we still say the prayers in Aramaic, right? Because uh, we're still, we're still there doing the same stuff. I, uh, I'd like to clarify something too. I'm wondering, is this like the, the ten biggest gripes you have about things ex Mormons say? Yeah, this that is prove, my list. That, that prove, <laughs> but that is it things. Me. Okay, well, as it's not clear, this is about me. Yeah, but is it things? Ten things that are that you find are reasons bad reasons to say it's fallacious or is it 10 things that ex-mormons shouldn't find irritating or have the, frustration the, the 10 with things that i think that 
get repeated a lot that I don't think have a lot of value as arguments against the church. You could just condense this down into a stupid shit ex-Mormon say? Maybe. See, so I and I'm just saying, I, I think a lot of these, though, in the case, it's not um, having to do with it not being true or proving that it isn't true, but it, but there's still legitimate emotional things that ex-Mormons have to have to come to terms with. They are. And these are so, obviously, since we've already spent an hour on this, these are these are complicated things. But I think oftentimes they just get repeated, just thrown off. You know, like the church. The church is not very Christian, ergo it's not true, blah, blah, blah. But okay. I, I think when you when you pull that apart and you say, uh, or the, the church owns malls, therefore it's not God's church. Well, it's not really a good argument. It's because you're implying that God doesn't want to own malls, and you have to make a case for that. And, well, to throw a monkey wrench in this general idea that Please. the church only takes care of their own. After I got excommunicated about a year later, and I went through a horrendous, evil, horrifying divorce, I was an excommunicated member. I hadn't been to church in a year, and my bishop paid for me to go see a counselor, and not one of the bullshit LDS family service counselors that suck, but an actual counselor. And until the bishopric changed, the new guy came in and said, you know, no, you, you got to come to church if you want this. And so I said, I guess I won't get therapy anymore. But, you know, at the time I made the joke that I baptized about 25 people, and some of them had to pay tithing at least a couple of times, so I, I was covering my own uh therapy but it was also really stunning they they threw me out of the church i was i was not a mormon and uh my bishop wasn't even my bishop wrote checks for i don't know a year to for me to see a therapist once a week it's uh, pretty astounding the church can be generous and one of the problems you point out too is because there's not training for bishops there's a lot of variety no. so but for every horror story here about bishops there's there's probably three or four or five of them being very generous and very giving and then that goes to the credit of the bishop because there's not one uniform. They're not all getting the same answer if they right. were all to sit down and vote because I've heard, you know, the other side of that. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I've heard of people getting disfellowship for jerking off. <laughs> maybe, I've, maybe I've gone too far. You know, like, I'm, like, a, like a, I guess at one point that would make me feel like that's just, that's just crazy, you know, that you would disfellowship somebody for that. Because what do you do about all those other bastards sitting there? Because they're <laughs> anyway. Go on, go on. No, that was it. Just then, and then you hear about bishops that have no reason not to, or then they take it on themselves to, you know, assume you're sinning. Or and I know people close to me that, you know, have had the bishop at at Christmas time refuse to help them. And I'm just like, oh. and then you hear a cool story like his. Right. Flips. It it, it, it happens, but. Yeah, like I've I've said before, just as, you know, to show my fairness to the church, I completely believe all of the leadership horror stories that I've heard, and I've seen stuff happen, but my experience, I had nothing but excellent leadership, ex so with the exception of my mission president, <laughs> all of my bishops and stake presidents, all that, even the guy who excommunicated me could not have been nicer about it, is right. what I can say. The he church was is fantastic. Full of, most people in the church are, are nice, genuine people trying to do the best they can. Uh, does does that excuse the church from everything that they're doing? No, it goes to my number 10. Just because the church is full of nice people doesn't mean the corporation isn't doing nasty, nasty things. But you can't blame that on the people. Okay, let's get down to our top four. Number four, the church is dangerous. Now, this is one I get asked all the time. Aren't you scared? People ask me that. <laughs> yes. Because, well, you know, I'm, I'm out here, the, the, the voice, the lone voice of... Reason in the wilderness of Salt Lake City. I think Ali Khan should share his mom's story about this one when she left. 
So she had heard one of those urban Mormon legends. And the best part is from a non-believer, this Christian guy she was dating after my parents' divorce. And she had heard this tale of a family who left or had shared some of what goes on in the temples. And they had mysteriously disappeared or been had their heads removed from the rest of their bodies, something like that. And she was just... When she would tell us as kids, she'd whisper it and worry that, I don't know, Big Brother or, I don't know. The church was dangerous at one point, um, back under Brigham Young. Um, and there were hitmen. But it was also the Wild West. It wasn't particularly dangerous. Like, Salt Lake City wasn't more dangerous than Phoenix, for example. Um, I, I have on at least two different occasions shown people the grips without their associated names. At the uh, Main Street Plaza, the the the, the handshakes, the the second token. I I have shown people those discreetly, but in openly at the Main Street Plaza. And I've also I've also I've also openly drank wine at two in the morning on the Main Street Plaza, and nobody came out to harass me on any of those occasions. The thing did not do is kiss a guy. If you're a guy there, then the fuzz comes out. The Mormon fuzz shows up real fast. But yeah, they're not scary. No, no, and 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 let's be be clear. I mean. If you go through, you'll hear stories like we were just hitting out of these horror stories of people who were excommunicated, people who are humiliated, people who had welfare taken away. But almost always these stories are something they thought they were entitled to that was removed from them. Now, this can be very humiliating, and the church does um, broker in that. But organizations in the United States have the ability to kick you out, like like, no one would argue that the local bowling league can't throw somebody out of the bowling league. It might be a douche thing to do, but they can do it. And that's different than being dangerous. There are some ex-Mormons who talk as if there are assassins or these guys, like, creeping around. Like, I've had my site hacked a couple times, usually by offshore, you know. And there are people who message me and say, is it the church? The church does not have a hacking wing. You know, they don't. they don't... <laughs> They don't go do this stuff. The church, um, you know, the church has a file clipping service. So the strengthening the members committee, what they do is they will take everybody who's a member of the church or a critic of the church and appears in the New York Times, whatever, and they'll collect those and keep files on them, just like news organizations do and other corporations do. This isn't an unheard of thing. But they don't like go after people. They don't like put a bag of shit on their doorstep or anything. <laughs> they, they do it to protect their own. And I know some of the things the church does. They have a huge internal fraud detection because there are people who go from ward to ward to ward and will get rebaptized over and over again to basically defraud the church from welfare. So the church is facing scammers like this all the time. So they do, they do track that to protect their own assets as you would expect them to do. There are legitimately people. I do have. A little bit of inside knowledge of like the people that are tracked for like conference. There's legitimately like crazy people around, right? I used to work for BYU police and I, I, I would see some of, some of the things that happen. There are like schizophrenics walking around who think they're God and stuff. And the church keeps their eye on these people because they show up on the property. Um, so, so the, but the, does the church track people like me? No, they don't care. When I was on my mission, I met Dick Bear, who, oh. with Ed Decker, made the Godmakers. Yeah, he lived yeah. in one of my areas, and we very wrongly went over to visit him. He's fine. He's Nobody's hurt him. Nobody harassed him. You, you can always tell who he is, because he's got the only license plate in California that says ex-Mormon. But, you know, he, I, we even knocked on his door, and he said, you know, I'm public enemy number one. 
And inside, I kind of laughed because I'm like, I don't think you realize how little the church cares about you. Right, right. A little, little influence. The church is more concerned about people inside than they are about outsiders like myself. And, and don't get me wrong that you can face real threat of losing jobs, losing clients, losing connections, being socially ostracized. And this goes to number 10. That's the members doing things. That's not the church doing things. And is the church itself a dangerous Isn't that the other way around though? I mean, number 10 was don't blame the members, but that's what I was going to say though. I, I mean, that's, that's the opposite because the no, damage no, but, does sometimes come more from the members in terms of, Oh, you know, oh, you're, he's not a member. Maybe, oh, they, you know, they drink wine, don't play with our kids. So they're, number you know, 10 that is kind just of... saying these things are separate. The members and the way they act for good or for bad, the church okay. and the theology are all separate things. So, so that's, that's the point is there can be a sleight of hand they are... where people say, Hey, I, I decided to leave the church and suddenly all the sisters in the Relief Society, um, ostracized me. Shitty thing to do. Terrible. But you can't really blame the church for what Sister Smith and Smith, Sister Jones do. Um, it might be part of the culture, but there's no like institutional, you shall ostracize these people, you know. Yeah, but number 10, you presented the other, the other way around. Well, yeah, I, I think they're not connected. I'm just saying they're inside. bad stuff, but it's not, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so we agree the church is not dangerous. Okay, the top three. Number three, Joseph Smith is a pedophile. Oh, my God. What a stupid argument. No evidence whatsoever at all that Joseph Smith has anything to do with pedophilia. What difference does it make on the truth claims that Joseph made? I mean, this is classic ad hominem. All right, well, let's talk about pedophilia. People don't like talking about pedophilia, but let's talk about it for a while. I like to talk about pedophilia. Thank you. Thank you for making us all feel awkward and creepy. And everybody out there, for years, people will be listening to this podcast and feel the awkwardness that we're all feeling right now. Thank you. They call him Philippe. So it's a psychological disorder. No one chooses to be a pedophile. No one's like 17 say, you know what I think I want to do with the rest of my life? That does not happen. It's a psychological disorder. Okay? And if you read the literature on these sort of things... Pedophiles have a specific target. This is why people sometimes freak out that you, you, you can look up sex offenders in your neighborhood, almost every place in the United States, but don't stop there. Look and see what their offense is because most of the time it's statutory, meaning they were a 21-year-old idiot and they had sex <laughs> with a 16-year-old at a party. Criminal behavior? Yes. We'll get you on the sex registry? Yes. Are you a pedophile? No. It's, it's not your target. And there's nothing in Joseph Smith's behavior at all to indicate that he was sexually attracted to children. There's so much evidence to indict Joseph on so many other things. Thank you. Why, why, why do you need to tack anything on? Did Joseph He's rotten with what we know about him. We don't need to make anything up to make him worse. Joseph Smith married a 14 and 15-year-old. 14 and 15 fall into this... Now, I'm not for marrying 14-year-olds. Let me be clear. But in terms of physical development, they fall into this window where they may have been sexually mature and appears that there are 14-year-olds walking around the street right now that you would mistake for a 20-year-old. Or they may have looked like a little girl, right? I, I think you can all think in your extended family and think about two nieces at 14 where one looked like she was 11 and the other looked like she was, uh, you know, like 18, um, and, and we don't know. What we do know is that nobody 
else associated with these, like their parents, said anything like, wow, why is Joseph Smith marrying children? So the circumstantial evidence would indicate that they were being married off. Now, it wasn't, it wasn't hugely common to marry 14-year-olds in the 19th century, but it wasn't unheard of. It wasn't considered, like now people would say, oh my God, what a pervert. Then they might have been like, hmm. But they didn't, they didn't look at it as if it was like pathological, like we do now. So, so was Joseph Smith manipulating power? Absolutely. Was he using his position to get sexual access to women who are too young or too under psychologically developed to be able to know better? Of course. Was he a pedophile? No. There's no, nothing to suggest that at all. Concurred. All right. The motion carries. All right. Thank you. Uh, okay. Number two. Martha Beck. Martha, Martha, Martha. So Martha wrote this book. <laughs> uh, Martha wrote this book, Leaving the Saints. Martha is um, uh, an author, kind of renowned. She's sort of new agey. Um, would appear on Oprah. Um, she was a BYU adjunct faculty at some point. She left the church, then wrote this book. Uh, Martha started dabbling in what's called um, uh, memory regression, re regression, therapy. regression therapy, where um, you get with a therapist, and then the idea is that there's all these repressed memories that you don't have conscious access to. But if you go through this therapy, then you can recover them. I think that we might be making a mistake. I think regression therapy is a legitimate psychological thing where you go over in your mind things that did happen, but what recovered memory is complete silliness. The hypnotic memory recovery thing is... Possibly, yeah, yeah. I, I'm not a psychologist, so so you might be right with the term. But this has been thoroughly debunked over and over and over again. And the general consensus is this is absolute, complete bullshit and there is no evidence whatsoever to even suggest that there's such a thing as a repressed memory and as a matter of fact just in the last few weeks um i think some of the early offenders have been in prison for 21 years have been released and you can read about this and the damage that's been done the problem that martha beck does is in this book which is full of all sorts of weird stuff and i would invite anybody just to go read her husband's review of the book martha was married and her husband says, this book is bullshit about the stuff that, I, that I'm involved in, the things I was directly there. She's making things up. And he has left the church, too. So it's not like he's just trying to defend the church. But she recovered these memories that, that um, Hugh Nibley, I think we talked about this a few weeks ago in a podcast, Hugh Nibley put on Egyptian garb and would ritualistically um, rape and abuse her in the living room. Um, and and that, that is a hallmark of recovered memories. They're they're oftentimes just over the top. When we didn't talk about this in the Satanist one, that's that's where we talked about this. Um, the the problem I have is that there's been ex Mormons who oftentimes ostensibly take on this religion of skepticism and atheism, but will will rally around. And I might be aging myself because this book's been out for ten years. So, but they will rally around Beck just because she's sticking it to the man, right? But when you look at her arguments. They're more spurious than the stuff the church is claiming. There's there's no reason to get behind her on this. Because I remember when the whole thing broke and there was news stories about it. Is this still – I? because, I mean, I'm not super plugged into the to the internet world of ex-Mormonism, but is it still 
talked about a lot? Does it's that come up that much? Books that they sell in Barnes and Nobles and stuff. It's one of the ones that you'll. I hear see people bring it up. Where, where it becomes an issue, and I will acknowledge this is an important issue. It becomes an issue in the ex-Mormon feminist circles more, because there there is a definite, very valuable idea that we do not want to blame victims of abuse. That we do not want to create an environment that's hostile towards victims coming forward. So there is a real conundrum in feminism for, for thing. And when I say feminism, by the way, to be clear, we're all feminists. Even if you don't think you are, this is an issue that we're all dealing with. It's not just a, um, but there's a, there's a real issue of this when things like Martha Beck comes along and you, you don't want to immediately say, Oh, it sounds outlandish because there's been plenty of legitimate victims who've been dismissed. Because he wouldn't be abusing you. He's the priest. Priests don't abuse little boys. These are messengers for God. Why would Joseph Smith marry 14-year-old? Joseph Smith was the prophet. So there's this, this sort of argument in the, in the other case. And I think that's where this thing stays alive. Because people do not want to dismiss Martha Beck as a victim. But I think on the grounds of recovered memories... And the grounds of the skepticism the ex-Mormons apply towards the church, the rational rationality that they say, you can't claim to have golden plates unless you produce them. Well, you can't claim to be ritualistically <laughs> abused in the living room by somebody wearing a funny hat unless you produce a hat. Another thing, I'm, the idea that somebody would sexually molest somebody else, I mean, that's kind of old hat. That's horrible. I does Did Hugh Nibley really have... Egyptian guard. That's what I wonder. Was that part made up too, or did he actually have a bunch of Egyptian costumes that he would? He, uh, from his family's perspective, they would say they would say no. This is compl-. and from what we know about Nibley, one of the people, it seemed really out of character. And I, once again, I will acknowledge that that is oftentimes what people say about actual abusers. That it wasn't in his character to to do that. But it, it's we go to the rationality of recovered memories, and that's the problem. Um. You can edit this out if it's one of your next things, but when you mentioned... Uh, We're down to number one. We only have one left. Oh, okay. Well, you mentioned with uh, that a lot of rational, atheist-type ex-Mormons will get behind Martha Beck, and their reasoning is because they want to kind of stick it to the church. And one thing I've noticed is, um, and in fact myself, when this uh, recent Judge Shelby made the decision on gay marriage... And uh, my first reaction to that was, yeah, that serves them right. You know, that'll teach the Mormons, you know. And, and, I, and then I, and I noticed a lot of people that are pro-gay rights that are, you know, in the ex-Mormon community are taking a lot more joy in the fact that, well, Mormons are on the wrong side of history than, on, than in the joy they could be taking in you know, our gay brothers and sisters having rights, it's, or more rights. It's kind of a misplaced, um, yeah, the hate overcomes the the joy for the progress. I don't know if that makes sense, if I worded that right, but, yeah. Yeah, the, kind of this thing where almost they want the church, they don't really want the church to change, they want to expose the church for being backwards. And, right. Yeah. I think they, don't, they don't like the idea of having one less bullet in the gun, I guess. But same thing. I don't understand. There's so many easy peasy, easily established ways to indict the church. Why do you need to hold on to Martha Beck to get any? I don't know how much mileage can you get out of that anyway. It's such a weird thing. Even if it was true, what what bearing would that have on the church? And I'm dating myself. This isn't a big thing, but th- this is one where where I almost had somebody punch me in the face over over this one uh, one time at a party. 
He was kind of drunk. To be <laughs> All right. Number one. I already hinted to you guys that I'm going to get in trouble for number one. Are you ready? The September 6th. Oh, my God. What an overblown, overhyped piece of nonsense that keeps getting mileage for something that wasn't that big of a deal. All right. So back in, is it 1993? Has it been that long ago? Back in 1993 and and, and subsequently, there was sort of this, the, the church sort of went after some scholars. <laughs> I'm going to really get myself in trouble. Um, he was doing air quotes there. <laughs> Went after some some scholars, and and in my mind, the things that happened at BYU, um, subsequent to this, were much more impactful than the September six. But the the um, media picked up on it, and it got this sexy name, um, and I think that 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 sort of that sort of drove it. Um, there has always been the idea that people in positions of um, influence in the church. BYU professors, um, writers, pundits, people in church authority have always been under pressure from the church. Now, there were some events that sort of kind of pumped this up a little bit. There was a, a, a speech given by um, Packer, and and there was, um, you know, so, like I said, some cracking down at BYU that, that, that all happened together. But the, the I think that tends to be pushed aside. And instead, they focus on these six people. Here's my take. They all deserve to be excommunicated. Um, and, and I say this from the perspective of the church. Like, should the church be excommunicating anybody? No. But the, they, they were espousing, like, weird doctrines of their own and um, saying things that weren't in line with what the church wanted to say. The church was following its own rules. And it's it's not like it was this big, huge academic purge. Matter of fact, of the September 6th, everybody says six people were excommunicated. Only five of them were excommunicated. One of them was disfellowshipped. Um, and disfellowshipping is much more common practice. And um, it's, it's given a lot more weight than what had actually happened. As a matter of fact, um, Maxine Hanks and Abraham, I can't remember, um, uh, um, Abraham, um, Gilead, Gilead, I, I can never remember. They were both rebaptized. Um, so, so they would acknowledge, they would have to, to be baptized, that their excommunication or disfellowship was just. Otherwise, they wouldn't, the church wouldn't lend back in. Like a, a Mormon Alfred P plea? What do you mean, Alfred plea? Oh, an Alfred, oh, uh, we'll have to cut this all out because it's, uh, never mind. Nobody knows what an Alfred plea is. And, <laughs> Like the, the, the Memphis Three, uh, an Alfred plea is where, like, somebody's been convicted of a crime. An Alfred plea is where they'll, like, exonerate you of the crime, but you have to admit that if you were tried again on the same evidence, you would be found guilty. Basically, it's, uh, you know, when they let this, the Memphis Three out, talking about people with n- uh, numbers, when they let the Memphis Three out, they were not technically acquitted of the murders even though they were let out because they obviously didn't commit them. But the way to get around, it's, it's basically so they couldn't come around and sue the prosecutors in the state of Alabama, Tennessee, whatever, I don't know, all that. But, uh, yeah, that's an Alfred Pete plea. So uh, I, don't, I don't think these are, these are bad people. I've, I've met one, two, three, four of them. I think they're nice people. Um, but 
you know, like D. Michael Quinn. I like his books. He's an interesting author. He's a great scholar. Should he been excommunicated? By the church's standard, he should. Does that mean anything about the church doing a, a big purge? No, it's completely in line with what the church has always done. If if Quinn had written his book 10 years earlier, he would have been excommunicated. If he written it 10 years later, he would have been excommunicated. If he had written it 50 years later, he would have been excommunicated. So the question is, does a September 6th mark a big watershed moment for the church? And I, I don't I don't really think it does. Toscano, Paul Toscano, he was off in the weeds. Um, Maxine Hanks was too. Um, so, so, so these guys are interesting people, but even calling them like scholars, um, implies that they were like sort of digging in the church history and like uncovering all this stuff. You can argue that Quinn was doing that, but, but the, but the, the others weren't. If I'm, if I'm, if I remember right, Levina was excommunicated for her mother in heaven sort of doctrine. So, so, so it's not even all academic. Some of it was theological, um, and and it's used as the watership case for the fact that the church doesn't tolerate academics. What the church doesn't tolerate is people in official channels um, promoting like heresy or unorthodox doctrines. So you say in 1993 the church wasn't what was concerned about unorthodox belief, but once again to me that wasn't watershed. What was watershed is the church sort of made a mistake. And it was like almost like a clerical error of kind of doing these guys close together. And they kind of all knew each other and they were involved at Sunstone. And then I, I mentioned there was, there was also a purging that happened at BYU where people's contracts were not, um, were not, um, renewed. I think, um, Brian Waterman wrote a book on it called The Lord's University or something. If you want, if you want to read about that to me, that's a bigger case. That, that has to do with academic freedom. And then at about the same time, the church came out on their symposia statement, but, We've turned these guys into sort of celebrities as the stand-in for this other thing that, that happened, that's happened before, has happened since. And I think we give it undue pressure. Uh, people talk about the September 6th if they're, if, if they're holy people, these martyrs for the critical cause. But I think if you sat and talked to Paul, which you should, go to Sunstone and talk to Paul. He's a fascinating guy. Maxine Hanks is, is extremely interesting. And, you know, she wants to give you a blessing. And, and <laughs> these people are really compelling, interesting people, but they are not the martyr saints for like the critical, rational arguments against the church. I, I would vote for, uh, like Grant Palmer or, or go way back to, uh, oh, was it William Clayton? The, the Mormon expositor guy, you know, William Law, William Law. Yeah, to me, he's kind of a, a martyr, justify, you know, but I don't think, I don't know, that's kind of, it's, I'm, I'm just trying to compare this to some other excommunications and just, uh. The September 6th was, I think, the worst thing it was for the church was a bit of a PR flap. Right. It, it didn't have any real theological, institutional, uh, consequences whatsoever. What, what it looked like, and, 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 at the time that the church was going to start a big purge. So people got really nervous. And I, I think, and there's a case to be made that the, the alarm was sounded and that stopped the church in its tracks. But that's still conjecture. You, I haven't seen any real evidence that the church had this Nixon-esque blacklist of 150 scholars and it just started in September. And by December, if they hadn't been stopped, they would have just like, the streets would have been running blood red. I don't, I don't know that's the case, but some people will sort of make it sound that way. Um, and 
I don't know. That, I say they're interesting people. Go to Sunstone, l- listen to them talk. But as some sort of huge like gaffe that the church made, it's a little overblown. But it still stands out for the the church. Uh, you know, doesn't stand, doesn't stand. You no, know, won't put up with uh, too much criticism. It stands out and, because it has a clever name. I think saving that for number one was a little overblown. Uh, that's fair. That's fair. Enough. I did. I did sort of. I did sort of pump it up a little bit more than it. I'm also running out of gas a little bit. I mean, it's been it's been a long time. You ran right? it backwards. <laughs> I I I assume something like it would come up somewhere because my my beef with uh, ex Mormons point one five, and this is also my beef with pretty much all of my fellow secularist, whatever, not conservative. What I can kind of consider bigotry against the bigots. Hmm. You know, or like like an example that I hear all the time, and this is like a general example, not necessarily Mormons, but I hear people say things like, I don't hang out with rednecks because they're racists, or I don't want to go to that bar because it's full of rednecks and I don't like rednecks, you know? And I'm seeing this play out a bit with the ex-Mormon community right now with the whole gay marriage thing in Utah, where, you know, Judge Shelby strikes it down, everybody hooray, yay, good. And, you know, then the state files for a stay as if that was a shock to anybody, and the Supreme Court grants the stay. And I see my my Facebook lights up with all these people going, I'm so angry. I can't believe these monsters. And, you know, I listened to NPR, and they talked about, like, why the Supreme Court granted the stay. And I heard that, and I said, that sounds perfectly reasonable. You know, it's a stay, and it, it makes sense. Like, they've got all these 48 cases, all this stuff going on. They want to put this thing on hold until everything gets shaken out. And then, and because, come on, relax. The, the gays are going to be married. I, I'm against all marriage, but I'm for <laughs> people having the right to make their own fucking mistakes. Um, but uh, it's this kind of thing I see all the time in the ex-Mormon community where it's like, you know, where they say it's like those damn Mormons are also bigoted. That's a bigoted statement, you stupid idiot. Think before you talk. Well, there's a similar thing I've heard oh, brought up over and again, which is ex-Mormons, at least in the circles I run, they say, you know, they, they point out that ex-Mormons gravitate towards atheism. What is it about Mormonism that makes ex-Mormons atheists? What it is is that you're not hanging out in the Baptist church. Because if you went over there, you'd find plenty of ex-Mormons who are Baptists. But you're self-selecting by being at this party smoking a hookah that the religious people who left the church are not there at the table, right? And I think we all do that all the time. We surround ourselves with our own people. And we're like, why is everybody so sexy like me? Well, because the other the other people go somewhere else. I have I have a perverse hobby where I listen to evangelical talk radio and have for years, and there's this thing that keeps coming up, and I've lost my train of thought again. Evangelical talk radio. Uh, evangelical talk radio, where uh, something to do with the gays. Oh yeah, and I, I, this comes up all the time, where people say like, you know, the, the the Mormons, the Christians hate gays, and I always get in a fight with these people. No, they don't. They don't hate gays. They believe something silly. And for you to just say they hate gays, like Fred Phelps hates gays. You can tell because he says so, right? But your typical Mormon, your typical evangelical, your typical Baptist, who's what they're, you know, I mean, we think it's stupid that love the sin or not the sin. All those stupid things they say. Yeah, we don't believe them. But when we turn around and say, like, that guy's just a hateful, for one thing, it shuts the conversation down. That's my problem with it. Is you'll never get anywhere. It was because when the Christian, when, when the liberal says to the Christian, you hate gays, the Christian just have to say, well, you're clearly not paying attention because any idiot who knew me what at all 
knows I don't hate anybody, let alone gays. I have a theological, sociological, psychological difference, whatever it is. We think it's wrong, all but we get so much of this in the ex-Mormon community, in general secular community, where we, they just turn around and do all the same, the same faulty logic when we draw, come to these conclusions about whole groups of people. We, we make up reasons for their motivations that are not true and that they dispute. That's the thing that drives me nuts with, with, uh, atheists and secularists talking about religionists is that they misrepresent they don't even listen to what they say. You know, when the Mormon says, I believe Joseph Smith is a prophet, I take it at face value. You believe Joseph Smith was a prophet. You know, maybe you know about Kinderhook, maybe you know about polyandry, maybe you know all this stuff, but whatever. Like, you talked about this with the parallax thing. And that's my beef with the ex-Mormon community, generally, is that so many of them, all they did was dress up their old Mormon bigotry in, in new clothes and and they walk around saying, well, I'm a, an enlightened modern person, and those stupid Mormons are all backward, which is a bigoted thing to say. Well, you'll you'll see this at parties um, of especially fresh ex-Mormons. People have been out of the church less than, say, two or three years. These parties are word of wisdom parties. They are just as much about the word of wisdom as Sunday school is, meaning it takes like a couple of years before ex-Mormons sort of comfortably fall into their alcohol consumption. So they will just, oftentimes they will reverse what they were doing. And unfortunately, it sometimes leads to some pretty bad habits. Like, oh, the church said uh, no heroin. Well, <laughs> the church is wrong about everything, you know. And 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 um, for most people, they go through a little bit of a phase like that. Like they say, ooh, alcohol is yummy. But it takes a long time to develop the palate to recognize that scotch is indeed yummy and that if it's not brown, don't drink it down. (laughs) You know what? A friend of mine was excited the other day and pointed out the high West um, distillery up here in park city had clear whiskey. whiskey. What a crime. You you want to talk about travesty. There's all this gay marriage shit. Let, let's talk about a real travesty in Utah. Because you, you, by definition, you have to age it in a barrel. So they pour it yeah, in, a barrels, it in a barrel, and then they pour it right out. This is a horror. This is awful. It's a bo- The bottling machine, it just goes into the barrel, and there's a hole in the bottom of the barrel. This is... This, oh, this is... I'm, t- I'm tearing up a little bit likely to puke if it's clear if it's clear it's for children that, that it's, it's yummy the, the reason they do that is that if it doesn't go in the barrel for the 30 seconds then you can't call it whiskey it's, it's not moonshine it's not whiskey it's corn flavored vodka I, it's <laughs> something well the high west stuff is uh is oat and barley i don't think they use any corn something magical happens in those barrels and you you, you can't deny that see this is not the kind of discussion that's going on at the ex-Mormon parties that are only one year in. So they kind of look like a bunch of weird 40-year-olds acting like they're in college, except they don't really have the guts to do the, the really interesting things. I wonder. I, I bet you there's like a, a bump in tequila sales every time somebody leaves the church. Because for some reason, when it comes to drinking and partying, tequila is the one. Did you see and last everybody year? tries the tequila, and then they go, oh, wait, that's not good. I, I argue that the church um, attrition rate is not... <laughs> increasing because the church has always had tons and tons of people leave. But the best argument that it is, is last year they posted a 30% increase in alcohol sales in the state of Utah in one year. 
Jeez, wow. Louise. The the Smiths at Ninth East and Nate or Eighth East, Ninth South. A couple, like it was last year or something. They had a sign in there that they were the single largest seller of Pabst Blue Ribbon in the world. What? Are all the hipsters moving from Brooklyn to Salt Lake? What's going on? No, it's it's going Sugar on? House. Sugar House is a pretty wicked yeah, place. That is that is pretty hipster, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, I don't Yeah, I, I think I think there's some other things that go on with ex-Mormons, this sort of reverse thinking. And th- this is not just an ex-Mormon thing, just sort of reversing the theology. Everything in Mormonism is good when I'm a member. Everything is bad. Um, and and, and I, I know that I tend to fight with the liberal Mormons who accuse me of being too black and white and thinking. Um, and I tend to accuse them of having squishy brains, uh, but th- there, there is some of that. There's this reversal of, of the same sort of black and white. You just flip them around and everything was bad. Everything's good. And, 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 um, but these, these 10 that I pointed out, I think are things that kind of show up and are representative of some, uh, some other thoughts, meaning just cause the church is not, true doesn't mean it's all bad doesn't mean everything about it is wrong doesn't mean the people are all stupid um and i think these are some of the some of the fallacies we see that just sort of the same sort of tainting that it's all evil and all wicked and everything the church does has to be wrong well when i was a member of the church i was a real asshole but now that i don't believe in it anymore i'm no longer an asshole you were a sanctimonious asshole. Now you're just an asshole. Well, see, somebody else might not agree with that. You were well, not I, an asshole. Come on. Well, or or I I think that we take so, so much of our baggage and our personalities with us, and and I think that's that's what I'm trying to point out is if you're a jerk when you're a Mormon, you're still going to be a jerk, and if you were a nice person beforehand and you go through this faith uh, crisis, you'll still have a lot of the same. Positive characteristics. I became a much bigger asshole after I left the church. I, I've had this conversation with people before where we're talking about our Mormon upbringings and Mormons we know and all this stuff. And, and you know, so-and-so's parents were, you know, narcissistic wackos with weird ideas. And I kind of came to the conclusion, like, that Mormonism doesn't create depression or narcissism or whatever, or OCD or anything like that. All it does is color it. You know, and, and I think people make the mistake when they see, like, you know, the Mormonism coming out in the mental illness and say, Mormonism did this. No, Mormonism was just the environment that this happened in. Yeah, yeah. I, it, it boosts, it's an, it's an asshole booster. For, for some, but for some it turns them in. There are people that I've seen that I say, ah, oh, you need to get back in the church. They need the structure. They need the direction. They, they need all that. Look. Being a member of the church is being a boat that's that's moored to a line in a bay. Your boat is not going to sink unless it sits there for a long time. You're going to be very safe. If you cut the line and go out to the seas, there are going to be storms. There are going to be waves. You're going to get wet. The world is a big, scary place. Sometimes it hurts. But sometimes there's some amazing things to see out there. Some of the sunsets after the storms or, or whatever, the islands you can go to. When you get your little dinghy out of that bay, there are some amazing things that you can see. And that leaving the church behind and going out there and discovering the world is scary, exhilarating, painful, hurtful, but it's part of life. What churches do is they shield you from all that. They keep everything nice and cozy and safe. 
if that's the way you want to live, then go do it. Um, but to me, I'd rather be out on the waves, even though they get me sick sometimes. All right. Well, we ended on a, a philosophical waxing boat. Um, so the, the ex-Mormons, yeah, you guys need to rein it in, said <laughs> the guy. Pass the sunscreen. <laughs> all right. Well, thanks you all. Thanks all of you for coming and, uh, thanks for listening once again. Make sure to come down uh, starting February 2014 to our studio um, in uh, Salt Lake City. You can check out the website at mormonexpression.com and they have the address and contact information. And we should have our recording schedule so you can see what you want to see. And I look forward to seeing you there. Good night, everybody. As a rock.